Good morning, church. Happy New Year to you. Good to have you here this morning. Glad to have all of our members. If you're a guest, we say welcome home. Glad to have you too. And also those who are live streaming. We see you out there and we're glad that you're with us as well. So today we're starting a new sermon series. It's entitled Knit and it's based on the sanctity of human life. Now here's what we're going to be doing uh, this month. There are four Sundays in January. And today I want to talk about the sanctity of human life and what does that mean. And this next Sunday, we're going to look at a word from the Lord, from the Word of God, for women who have had abortions and for men who may be the father of uh, children who've been aborted, and really all of those who've lost children, and have a word of uh, healing and grace and restoration. That'll be next Sunday. And then the third Sunday, we're going to talk about alternatives to abortion, like adoption, and we're going to interview the executive director of the CareNet Pregnancy Center here in Vero Beach. She happens to be a member of our church, Bonnie Martinelli, so we'll have an interview with her. And then on the fourth Sunday, we'll talk about abortion and what it is, why it's wrong, and uh, why it is sin. I want you to know that I know that it's an emotionally charged issue and that you trust me as your preacher not to be harsh about these things, not to come across as uh, self-righteous. I won't. I don't. I hope not to. And as I've prepared these messages, I tried to put myself uh, in your seat and be cognizant of that. We're going to approach this and try and strike that balance of grace and truth that Jesus always did so well. But today, what I want to focus on is the sanctity of human life. We want to do a deep dive into what that means and what are its applications for us today. So I'm going to say five things about the sanctity of human life. The first one is... It's based upon our being created in the image of God. Sanctity of human life is based upon our God image, Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Oh, you're familiar with this passage, but this is the key. This is the key to the whole doctrine and philosophy and idea of the sanctity of human life. It's based upon our being created in God's image. Why did Jesus, last, last month we were talking about the incarnation, Jesus being incarnated, being born. Why did God come to us in the form of a human being? Nigel Cameron writes, the reason why God could become man was that man, his creature, already bore his image. He already reflected the personal character of God in a human form. For God to become man in embryo therefore requires that man in embryo already bears the image and absolutely forbids the possibility that in the early stages of his biological life, the divine image can be absent. So this first idea is simply very simple. We're created in the image of God and therefore life is sacred. Second thing I want to say, what this means is, among other things, sanctity of human life, is that we are distinct from the animals. Human beings are distinct from the animals in the animal kingdom. Again, verse 26, And God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over all the wild animals on the earth. We're separate from, over, we have stewardship over the animals, dominion over the animals, as some versions put it. Theologian Jack Cottrell writes this, The basic theological principle that underlies the sixth commandment. Okay, Ten Commandments, and the sixth commandment is what? That's right, thou shalt not murder. That's the sixth commandment. He says, the theological principle that underlies the sixth commandment is the sanctity of human life, and I'm using the word sanctified not so much in the sense of sacred or spiritually holy, 
but more in the original sense of the word holiness, which means separate from or different from. There's, holy can mean two different things. Sanctified can mean two different things. Holy can mean spiritually holy and separate from sin, or ontologically holy, meaning a different kind of being. So to say that God is holy, for instance, in one sense, means that God is a totally different kind of being from everything else that's created. God is uncreated. Other beings are created. And that's the way he's using holy here. When we say life is sanctified, the sanctity of life, we're saying that human life is different and distinct from animal life. All other created forms of life. God has set human life apart from plant and animal life and has given us the sixth commandment for the very purpose of protecting it from all human attempts to violate it. So man, in our understanding, is not the most highly evolved animal. We're very distinct and different from the animals. In 2010, at the annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the topic of conversation was whether dolphins should be granted some form of human rights that would protect them to a greater degree than other animals. Thomas White of Loyola Marymount University made the argument that dolphins are not merely like people. They may actually be people, or at least non-human persons, as he described them. White made the suggestion that since dolphins meet virtually all the criteria that philosophers agree make us human for instance, aware of the environment or demonstrate emotions, that it should be logically accepted that dolphins are people too. Of course, if this is the criteria that must be met for personhood to be granted, one can make a strong case for apes, baboons, dogs, cats, rabbits, and a whole host of other animals to be put on the same philosophical plane as human beings. Oddly enough, Often the same advocates who want dolphins to be protected with personhood rights are the very ones who vehemently deny baby humans in the womb those same rights. For example, Professor Thomas White that I just quoted denies babies in the womb human rights but wants to confer those rights upon dolphins. So what we are saying here is we are created in the image of God that means that human life should be valued and protected to a degree that animal life is not. We have dominion over the animal. We have dominion and stewardship over the environment. God has given that to us as human beings. That means we should protect the environment. And also, we're not justifying any kind of cruelty to animals either. Dolphins may need to be protected in certain ways. But that's not based on their personhood. That's based on our personhood. Okay, so what we're doing is a deep dive here into the sanctity of human life. What does it mean? Number one, it's based on being in the created image of God. Number two, it means that human beings are distinct from animals in the animal kingdom. Here's the third thing I want to say about it. What are the characteristics of our God image? So to say we're created in the image of God, what does that mean? Okay, we're, what does that look like? Like, my son looks a whole lot like me. Is it something like that, that we resemble each other physically? Have you ever heard that pet owners sometimes resemble their pets? i got a couple of pictures up here to show you. I think. Do we have those slides back there? We have the pet owners and their pets are... There we go. Three or four. <laughs> yeah. You guys know it. Probably some of you. I've seen some of your pets. You look just like your pets. 
Is it like that? Is it a physical resemblance? Obviously, no. The Bible says God does not have a physical body. God is spirit. So it's something else. It's spiritual. It has to do with character. Now, again, let me read to you. Uh, theologian Jack Cottrell suggests these eight characteristics as part of our God image. I'm going to go through them quickly. Uh, you won't have time to write them down. If you wanted this list, you can request the manuscript today on the connection card there, and I'll email you the manuscript. Number one, personal consciousness, the consciousness of self as a person. This includes the awareness of others as persons and the ability to relate to them interpersonally, for example, in love. Number two, intellectual capacity, the ability to think abstractly, to reason, to plan, to discern, to use logic, and to use wisdom. Number three, verbal language. You know what verbal language is. Number four, volitional capacity. That's free will. Number five, moral and ethical capacity the sense of right and wrong. Number six, creative capacity, the ability to invent and to make things to fulfill needs and desires from a utilitarian perspective, the ability to discern and to appreciate the beautiful. Number seven is the capacity for emotions, joy and sorrow, grief and elation. And number eight, the eighth characteristic is the religious or spiritual capacity. The capacity for knowledge and consciousness of God. The capacity for worship. The sense of dependence upon the Creator God. And it's really this eighth, this eighth characteristic, this religious spiritual capacity that is an unbridgeable gap between us and the animal kingdom. It kind of elevates the first seven that we talked about. All those first seven capacities and characteristics can be used in this eighth way to relate to God. We relate to God with our personal consciousness, with our intellectual capacity, with our verbal language, with our free will, with our moral and ethical capacity. We relate to God creatively and emotionally. All of these are incorporated into that eighth characteristic. And the, uh, the animals just do not have that. I mean, if you go down to the bottom of the ocean, you don't find cathedrals that have been built by the dolphins. They just don't do that. That's a human characteristic. Fourthly, we're saying five things today about the sanctity of human life. Fourthly, the sanctity of human life imparts to us meaning and purpose. Meaning and purpose. Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, 37, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Two of the great philosophical questions that human beings ask themselves in, the, in our reflective moments. Who am I and why am I here? Who am I? And why am I here? Now, the answer to that question is going to vary depending on who is the storyteller of life. If we believe that we are all just the result of chance chemical processes and there is no great storyteller to life, we're going to come to a very different conclusion than if we believe we're created in the image of God and God is telling his story or history. Shakespeare's character Macbeth made this famous statement. Life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury and signifying what? Nothing. Signifying nothing. Well, that makes, that makes logical sense. If there is no storyteller and there is no God. And many people, much of our society believes this. In fact, I'm going to show you a clip right now of a professor of physics, Lawrence Krauss, just a snippet 
of a lecture that he gave, and you'll hear this come through, and I'll come back around and make an application. We'll roll that clip, please. But the amazing thing is that every atom in your body came from a star that exploded. And the atoms in your left hand probably came from a different star than your right hand. It really is the most poetic thing I know about physics. You are all stardust. You couldn't be here if stars hadn't exploded because the elements, the carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, iron, all the things that matter for evolution weren't created at the beginning of time. They're created in the nuclear furnaces of stars and the only way they can get into your body is if the stars were kind enough to explode. So forget Jesus, the stars died so that you could be here today, okay? And, and anyway. Yeah, so I don't know if you caught the end there, forget Jesus, the stars died so that you could be here today. You know, if, if I was in the classroom, I'd, I would have a couple of questions for Professor Lawrence Krauss. Number one, I think it's one of the laws of thermodynamics that matter can neither be created nor destroyed, and the matter is not eternal because there was a big bang, there was a beginning. So where did these furnaces of the stars come from? Where did the stars come from to begin with that supposedly had all this matter that, from which we are created? Right. They had to have a beginning. They had to have a creator. Now, so that doesn't make any sense. Matt, God, by definition, is uncreated. He is the first cause. He is eternal from which everything else comes. That makes sense, but this doesn't. And the second thing I would ask the professor is that may sound poetic. He says, the most poetic thing I know is that we are all comprised of stardust. And that may sound poetic, but how does it impart any meaning or purpose to a person's life? You're still going to die at the end of life, and it's all, all that we've tried to accomplish is gone when we die. There is no meaning and purpose. Life would still be a tale told by an idiot. Sound and fury signifying nothing. On the other hand, if the storyteller is God, and we are all created in the image of God, and we ask the question, who am I and why am I here? We get a very different answer. Landon Gilkey writes, the Christian understanding of creation as an act of a free and loving divine will is the sole basis for our confidence that our finite life has meaning, a purpose, and a destiny which no immediate misfortune can eradicate. In other words, if we go through life, we will experience some misfortunes. That does not change the fact that we're created in the image of God, that God loves us. We have a meaning, a purpose, and a destiny. And therefore, life is a tale told by God, full of meaning and purpose and signifying His glory and our significance. Okay, so four things so far about the sanctity of human life. Fifth thing that we want to say is the sanctity of life, human life, imparts to us value and worth. Herein lies our value and our worth. Jesus said in Luke 12, 24, you are far more valuable to God. I'm going to read a series of quotes for you here. And because, again, I want to contrast these two approaches or these two views of the meaning and significance of life. Dr. William Harrison, a pro-choice advocate, argues, quote, the real issue in the abortion debate today is not when life begins, but is it morally meaningful life? And he's right about that. The issue is no longer when life begins. In 1973, the Roe v. Wade decision legalizing abortion across the country. Science was something back then. 
in the 50 years, 50 plus years since then, science has advanced dramatically. So we know, I mean, it's demonstrable that life begins at conception. It's not, not a question of when life begins, but is it morally meaningful life? Well, who gets to decide that? Well, historically, the people who've had the power. The people who've had the power destroy, decide that for people who don't have the power. I mean, there was a time in our history when whites suggested that African Americans were less than full, fully persons, fully human persons, and the Supreme Court affirmed that. And so they were denied rights, including the right to life. There was a time when the Nazi Germany denied that Jewish people were fully persons, and so their rights were denied, including the right to life. There was a time when, in our history when men wanted to deny certain rights to women. And now the debate in our culture is big people want to decide that little people are less than fully human persons and deny them rights. Peter Singer, the Princeton ethics professor, wrote, quote, The life of a fetus is of no greater value than the life of a non-human animal at a similar level of rationality, self-consciousness, awareness, capacity to feel, etc. If we compare a severely defective human infant with a non-human animal, a dog or a pig, for example, we will often find that the non-human has superior capacities, both actual and potential for rationality, self-consciousness, communication, and anything else that can plausibly be considered morally significant. When the death of a disabled infant will lead to the birth of another infant with better prospects of a happy life, the total amount of happiness will be greater if the disabled infant is killed. The loss of happy life for the first infant is outweighed by the gain of a happier life for the second. Therefore, if killing the hemophiliac infant has no adverse effect on others, it would, according to the total view, be right to kill him, end quote. And notice he's transitioned in his language. He transitioned there from fetus to infant, which is a logical progression. If this philosophy is true, nobody is safe, ultimately. Everywhere Peter Singer goes to lecture, he is protested by dis a disabled people and rights groups for the disabled because they recognize the implications of what he is saying for them. Jim Newhall, the Oregon abortionist, writes, Not everybody is meant to be born. I believe for a baby, life begins when his mother wants him. And Dr. Charles Hartshorn of the University of Texas echoes Singer's ethics. He writes, Of course, an infant is not fully human. I have little sympathy with the idea that infanticide is a form of murder. Persons who are already functionally persons in the full sense have more important rights than infants. End quote. University of Chicago biologist Dr. Leon Cass says concerning the direction of modern science and medicine, quote, we are already witnessing the erosion of our idea of humankind, man, as something splendid, as a creature with freedom and dignity, and clearly, if we come to see ourselves as meat, then meat we shall become, end quote. What we're saying, on the other hand, is this idea, this doctrine, this teaching of the sanctity of human life means that human beings have dignity and worth and value and significance and meaning, not because of what we can do, not because of our abilities, not because of what we can contribute, but simply by virtue of being born 
into the human family. It is inherent in who we are as creatures of God and made in His image. And we must feel that and understand it for ourselves before we'll move on to understand it for other people and want that for them. So, um, a lot of us are parents here this morning. Not everybody, maybe, but even if you're not, you can probably relate to that. When our first child was born, Stephen, he was, that labor was 30 hours followed by an emergency cesarean section. So it was long, it was difficult, it was painful, it was exhausting, and Tammy was tired too when it was over. So I'm going to say that. But he, uh, he, having spent 30 hours in the birth canal, he had a cone head. Do any of your kids have a cone head? You spend that long in the birth canal, you don't get a nice round Gerber baby head, you get the cone head. But even then, he still looked like me. And when he was born, I held him and looked at him and loved him. I'm bonded to him right there in the delivery room. You know, remember how that was? He couldn't do anything for me. He couldn't say anything to me. He couldn't love me back. He was just a baby. All he could do was receive. And yet, I loved him so much and bonded to him. You know, I like your children and your grandchildren, <laughs> but I am bonded to and love my children and grandchildren. You understand that. You like other people's children mostly and their grandkids, but you are, there's something special about your kids and your grandkids. So we feel this bond for them. And there's nothing to, that they can do to break that bond. So when he grows up, he's in his 30s now. If he were to go off, Stephen, my son, if he were to go off and join the Taliban, become a terrorist against the United States, I wouldn't like that, but he's still my son. And I would still love him. I can see myself interviewed on the 6 o'clock news. Right, Mr. Jones, what do you think about your son who joined the Taliban? You know, I don't, I'm not real happy about that. But what are you going to do? He's my son. I still love him. So we've seen interviews like that. We can kind of all relate to that. Our kids maybe do things we don't appreciate, but we're still going to love them. We're always going to love them. And what I want us to feel this morning, and I know you already know this, but I want us to feel this is that's the way God feels about every one of us. You are God's son or God's daughter. I am God's son. And he, before I could do anything, he loved me. Before I could sing a song of worship to God in church, before I could put any money in the offering plate, before I could do some act of obedience or sacrifice to advance the kingdom of God, or you could, God loved me. God loves you regardless of what we can do for him or can't do for him. In fact, there's nothing that we can do that can stop God from loving us. In a sense, when we understand the nature of sin, we say, oh, I sinned, no big deal. Sin is always a big deal. Sin at its heart. That's why God hates it so much. Sin at its heart. When I commit a sin, I'm casting my vote for a world where God is off the throne and I'm on the throne. I'm in control. Right? Actually, it's an attempt to kill God and take his place on the throne of the universe and my life. That's what a sin is. In a sense, it's me joining the Taliban, trying to overthrow the reign and the rule and the sovereignty of God. And yet the Bible says, while we were still in that state of rebellion against him and sinfulness, God sent his son to die for us. Why? Pure love. He loved us even while we were in the Taliban, so to speak. He loved us even when we sinned against him. Loved us before we ever loved him or thought of loving him. 
That's that bond. And as much as you love your children and your grandchildren, God loves them more. And God loves you more. We don't make babies. God makes babies. You contribute either a sperm or an ovum. I'm sorry you had to hear that. But we contribute that. But when they come together, it's God who brings about the spark of life. And as David said in Psalm 139, what was true of him? He said, God knit me together in my mother's womb. That's God's work that's going on in there, knitting, creating, developing. What was true of David in Psalm 139 is true of you, and it's true of me. God did not just create Adam and Eve and get the ball rolling, and the rest of us are just the processes of nature. God is in, involved individually and personally in each one of our creations as human beings. And whether we live 108 years or 80 years or 30 years or whether we only live 18 years or 18 days, it's not the longevity that's important. What's important is God created us and he's bonded to us and he loves us. We're his sons and daughters. We need to feel that this morning. What God thinks of us and how he feels about us is more important than what anybody else thinks. Isn't it sad when you read of some middle school girl who's bullied on social media and commits suicide because she cared more about what somebody else thought of her than what God felt about her? Well, middle schoolers are not the only ones who are subject to the negative thoughts and pressure of social media or peers. We're all subject to that. We all have to get to the point where we understand what's the most important thing in our life is what God thinks about us and how God feels about us. See, the sanctity of human life has implications and applications for all of us here today. But once we see that, once we understand it and believe it and we feel it, then we're ready to turn our attention and receive and believe value, worth, significance, for all other people as well. Other types of people, other ethnicities, people who may be different from us, other people's children, and the life in the womb. And we're ready to do what Solomon challenged us to do, Proverbs 31.8, to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Our Father in heaven, we thank you today as we revisit this idea of the sanctity of human life. As we remember that each one of us, we didn't just come from some chance process. We're wanted. Every one of us is wanted by you. Every one of us is loved infinitely by you. And having created us in your image, we have worth and value and meaning and purpose and significance. And so do our friends. So do our neighbors. So do our brothers and sisters. So do our enemies. So do the little babies. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.